1: Welcome everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. What a treat to this day. We're going to be talking about the Champagne Riots. Two words you don't often hear juxtaposed unless you're talking about the university careers of notable recent British Prime Ministers. The Champagne Riots took place in Champagne. It's a fascinating story about big wine. Big wine in France 100 years ago. Bad harvest, climate change, invasive species pandemic. I mean, you name it. It's all here, everybody. It's all here. And it's fascinating stuff. And I'm pleased to say that I've got on the podcast Rebecca Gibb. She is, uh, she's making waves in the UK. She's a wine journalist, wine critic. She's in fact a master of wine, which I mean, just sounds so cool. She's won the Bollinger Medal in recognition of outstanding tasting ability. It's so cool. And she's incredibly engaging. She was on, I was on TV with her the other day. She said to me, a particular field of expertise is these champagne ride. Right. So I said, get on the podcast ASAP. And that's what we did. So we had this great chat. Enjoy it. was filmed. It's going to be, uh, this will be eventually, it'll be a film on History Hit TV like so many other, ones. we've got hundreds of films on there. If you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you get six weeks free access uh, to History Hit TV. Check it out. If you don't like it, don't subscribe. But if you do, join us, join us, become subscribers. We have got feature length documentary on there. The air war in, in the Second World War. Lots of extraordinary historians there. Hopefully a more in-depth look at but the Bomber War. On these important anniversaries, 75 years since some of the most enormous bombing raids of the Second World War. So please, uh, please go and check that out. We've also, from now on, we've got all of the old podcasts from 2015 and 2016 are now on HistoryHit.tv exclusively. So you get the app from the App Store, you download the app, you subscribe, and you can listen to all our old episodes, which are now themselves things of history, I suppose. So, in in the meantime, everyone, here is... Rebecca Gibb. Enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: You're welcome. You Uh, asked nicely. Yeah,
1: I did ask nicely. Repeatedly. I've been trying to get on for ages.
0: I know. You're a busy man man, and I'm a busy lady.
1: So, uh, champagne, was it always the luxury brand of of alcoholic grape juice?
0: Well, it hasn't actually always been sparkling until the sort of the late... 17th century early 18th it was still very much a still wine it's amazing to hear that most of the wines were actually red rather than white
1: so champagne was a red flat wine
0: yeah and you can still get red flat wine from champagne bollinger makes one there's a village called boozy which specializes in rouge so boozy rouge i know you couldn't think of a better name could you so it was it wasn't sparkling until maybe early 18th century and they didn't really have a grasp of how it was becoming sparkling at that point. It isn't until winemaking technology comes along in the 19th century that we actually get a hold on what makes champagne sparkling and and what it what it would look like today.
1: So people in the 18th century when when you when you get like characters in Dickens they drink champagne, it's just this weird, fizzy wine that's coming out, and no one quite knows why it's fizzy.
0: Well, there isn't a lot of scientific knowledge around wine until the likes of Loisier and Chaptal and Pasteur come along. Uh, until then, it's really what they've been doing before. What did their fathers do? What did other monks do? Uh, it really was just a case of observation. How cool. Ooh. So,
1: okay, so we've got, okay, so champagne, when did it become the sort of the poshest version of wine?
0: Well, actually, in Restoration London, there was an exile called Charles de Saint-Evermond, who is buried in Port's Corner in Westminster. He comes along to Restoration England, and he introduces Champagne to the royal court. And that's when its first association really comes with luxury. In the early 1800s, the czars and Princes were starting to drink it, but there wasn't a lot of it going around at that time. I think there's some statistics that say in about the early 1800s, there's probably around 300,000 bottles of sparkling champagne being made. So there's not a lot of it going around. There's lots of people who want to drink it, so it necessarily has a high price. So really it is only reserved for high society at that time. And can other parts
1: of France make fizzy
0: wine today? Anyone can make fizzy wine. In the same way as champagne, you can use the champagne method, which means that you do a second fermentation in the bottle. So fermentation is sugar plus yeast, makes alcohol and carbon dioxide. So you do your first fermentation to make a still base wine and then you put it into a bottle, you add some sugar, you add some yeast, Byproducts are carbon dioxide and alcohol and the carbon dioxide is trapped in the bottle and that's what, where you get the sparkle from so it's a, a a bottle fermented sparkling wine you can do that anywhere but you can only call it champagne if it is from the area that is champagne and that was one of the major reasons the riots in 1911 which we'll talk i'm sure we're going to talk about at some point tell
1: me about these riots. that's why i wanted to talk to you what on earth is going with the champagne
0: riots? well obviously champagne is associated with luxury it has been as i say since sort of restoration england and yet there is great poverty in the champagne region in the early 1900s there's lots of factors involved in the champagne riots but really the catalyst for the riots that take place in spring 1911 is that people have basically got no money bread prices are skyrocketing and they had a total fail, failure of a harvest in September 1910 which means they've got no grapes to sell times are tough so that's the catalyst but trouble has been fermenting in champagne for at least 20 years before the riots take place why, what's wrong
1: with
0: champagne? What's wrong with France? In the, for the French wine industry in the late 19th century is one of the big problems that the country faces at this time is a thing called phylloxera. Phylloxera is a, an aphid and it goes around nibbling on the roots of vines. It eats the sap and it also, when it goes on its merry way, leaves wounds behind which any disease can therefore access. It comes from America and in 1862 a vine grower in a village just north of Avignon receives a present from an American friend, he receives some vines. It doesn't go so well then, within two years of him planting these vines he notices these galls on the leaves, on the vines, the vines are dying. Several miles away the same thing is happening. So this is happening early 1860s, by 1900 2.5 million hectares of vines in France have been uprooted because Phylloxera has basically ravaged France's vineyards. People use various methods to try and cure it, but they're really, you can't just deal with the symptoms. People are injecting a nerve poison, carbon disulfide, into the soil in an attempt to prevent its spread. It works for a while, It's it's not so effective. The government, the French government also offers a 20,000 franc reward for a cure. And there are some fanciful cures offered up, including a marching band playing in the vines. And there's also burying a live toad and other other such useless ideas. But what they had to really do was they had to graft their vines onto the rootstock of an American vine. And that is the only cure for Phylloxera. Are
1: you telling me that all the French vines in France today are descended from American vines.
0: I am telling you that all the vines across the world that are vitis vinifera, that are international, like Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, they are all grafted onto the rootstock of an American vine. Is that big news for you? Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, my French brother, our brother is French, really, yeah. and he's got <laughs> a heart open, so he hears that. Huh? Sorry, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. But if, there, if it wasn't for American, what's known as American root stocks, there would be no French wine industry today.
1: Really? Yeah. So that process is now going on in the late 19th century. Yeah. Sounds expensive. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app.
0: To create the new vine it 's actually the cost of uprooting your entire vineyard and then replanting it. If you want to replant a vineyard, you have to wait between three and five years for a crop oh my
1: goodness
0: so there are a lot of these vineyards having to rip out their vines and then they 're having to replant at great expense they haven 't really got any life savings left they don 't have any assistance from the government to do this and then on top of that, in the early 1900s, there are crop failures through mildew, there's lots of rain, there's rot. People aren't able to harvest. They've got. This is one of the great problems for Champagne and the rest of the country in 1910, that they've got a string of failed harvests on top of having to replant huge financial problems.
1: And are most grape producers in the spirit? they kind of artisanal, who then give their grapes to the local vineyard? I mean, so they're not, they're mm. small holders, are they?
0: Champagne has a unique structure in that it's very fragmented and people who own vineyard parcels own very small vineyard parcels and they don't have the infrastructure to produce the wine. So that's why you've got the likes of Merton Chandon or Louis Roederer. Their champagne houses they don't own enough vineyards today, even today, to fulfil all their needs to make their wine. So what happens is there are grape growers and there are wine producers in Champagne, and the grape growers are selling their grapes to these big houses on négociant. And if they haven't got any grapes to sell, what are you going to do? The, the Champagne houses, however, have got reserve stocks from previous vintages, so they're able to draw on these reserves in difficult times. So they're not as, as highly affected.
1: And you've got the first war on the horizon, which is not easy in Champagne either. But anyway, so let's talk about, when are the riots?
0: So the riots start to occur in the first three, four months of 1911.
1: Oh, 1911,
0: turbulent year. And the harvest has failed in September 1910 they harvested around 2% of what they would do on average. 1907 was a terrible harvest, 1908 was a terrible harvest, 1909 was a very small harvest, although the quality was good, and then you get this absolute cataclysmic harvest in 1910. So no one's got any grapes to sell, and yet this is the time when champagne sales are at record highs. People are drinking a lot of champagne by now. Champagne sales, almost double between 1890 and 1910. So you've got 300,000 bottles being sold in the 1800s to these czars and princes, 39 million bottles by 1909. But there are no grapes. So where's all the wine coming from? It's not coming from the Marne department or the Aube department, which is the traditional heartland of champagne production.
1: So you're all your big champagne producers are buying in the grapes from elsewhere?
0: The unscrupulous ones are, yes. They are buying in grapes from the Languedoc, thank you to the railways in the 19th century, and and also lots of the wines coming from the Loire Valley. They are being chucked in by rail to Epinay Station, and then they're going into the cellars of these négociants, and they're coming out sparkling, and with a champagne label on it. <laughs> People are pissed off, and... and People therefore blame lots of the negotiations for depressing grape prices. Supply and, de- supply and demand economics suggests that if your sales are at record highs and your grape harvest is at a record low, the price for grapes is going to necessarily be high. However, that doesn't work when. You can cheat. You can cheat.
1: And so all of these grape growers. In Champagne, mm. take my own hands.
0: Yes, they do. Things come to a head in April, nineteen eleven. Things have been boiling in the first few months of nineteen eleven. There are isolated incidents of villagers going into one of the, some of the merchants' houses and basically tipping, emptying casks down the street, of glass bottles being strewn all around the all around the village and obviously nobody was saying anything. The police would arrive and everyone would be back in their houses. But things come to a head in April 1911. The government have been moderately involved in coming up with some regulations to prevent fraud from happening. But they've been dilly-dallying and they haven't been implementing these laws. And the producers are just sick of it. And so in April 1911, they take to the streets and they take to the vineyards and in the village of Ai which is where Bollinger is based for example there are barricades put up there are champagne houses burnt to the ground and the government by that time has already brought in troops so, there are troops stationed in Champagne to try and maintain peace. They've seen that trouble is fermenting since, ni- since the 1910 harvest failed, and they are trying to keep cap on it. But there are too many vignerons. And in April 1911, they do around the equivalent of about a million pounds worth of damage to various Champagne houses, and there are about 40,000 vines that are trampled or burnt or raised. It's, it's quite interesting to know that a lot of those vines that were damaged belonged to the unscrupulous merchants. There is a book called the Livre Noir des Assassins. So basically an anonymous pamphlet has been produced in early 1911 that lists down all those producers who are thought to be acting fraudulently. And it's interesting to know that the champagne houses that were targeted in these attacks were the ones listed in this book.
1: Okay, so it's, um, it's action, quite directed action at these, uh, at these houses. What is the effect, Do the, does the government and the troops and the, uh, they crack down presumably not on the fraudsters but on the, the people rioting?
0: Absolutely, and, and in the town of Epinay on the same day, the cavalry charges at another protest and villagers on the street are opening their doors for people to escape the sabers that are being swung at them. But that because of the violence incited on these days in April, a lot of people turn against the vignerons. Um, they didn't like the violence. One of the is one of the cinema local cinema owners. He went out into the street to film what was happening, to then show it in his cinema and his theatre. And it actually turns out that the police then seize this film and use it almost as CCTV and they arrest 150 people that they see on this film. As a result, arrests are made, and then trials take place in a mining town an hour to the north of Vépinay, uh, in Douai. Uh, there's a trial of around 46 people. But the jurors are all miners, they, and they take pity on the vignerons. They, they're experiencing similar hardship at this time, and there are only a few that are actually convicted What is the
1: long-term impact of of these riots?
0: It's interesting to note that tensions that were fermenting then start to go on a simmer after the riots. The government has decided that it will create a zone where you can only make champagne, and it's now going to implement those measures. So the riots worked? In a way, yes, the riots kind of worked. The government... Agrees to implement the measures around the zone of Champagne, so now there is what the an embryonic what we call an appellation. They also have an area about 100 kilometres to the south called the Aube, who want to be part of Champagne. And this was part of the this was part of the tensions. The Marne wanted just to be Champagne, but the Aube, which is where near Troyes, which is the historical centre of the Champagne region, they also want to be part of Champagne for reasons of history. And so what the, the government does, it's, it creates, the Marne is the most prestigious champagne zone, but you can also create champagne as a deuxième, a second zone in the Aube. It's a bit of fudging, but it works for now. These are riots that are happening in April, and by May and June, the vines are flowering again. It's time to get back into the vineyards for these vineyards to get ready for the next harvest, which turns out to be bountiful. And those economic issues are less pressing once they have grapes to sell.
1: Did everything go back to the way it was before, or were there, were there changes in the relationships between the, the, far, the, the grape growers and champagne houses? Did they forgive them?
0: The big champagne houses, the big famous names, tended not to be the ones that were committing fraud. The tension between the grower and the houses persists to this day. Because prices, the prices of the grapes each year are decided and there's always, the houses want them cheaper and the growers want them to be more expensive. And there's that tension, that structural tension within champagne which continues to this day.
1: As people around the world want to drink champagne, there's enough grapes, are they? They've managed to produce more and more grapes, I guess. Or do they sneak them
0: in? They do not sneak them in. However in 2008 when champagne sales were at a record high, funnily enough the INAO, which is the legal body for Appalachians in France, they announced that they were going to do a review of the champagne area and that they were looking at increasing the vineyard area by about a thousand hectares. It's, its timing was impeccable shall we say. They're still doing the analysis of the sites but should you be on the right side of the border your land will be around you know a million euros a hectare. If you land on the wrong side of the border you might be selling your land for about five thousand euros a hectare.
1: Wait five thousand?
0: Well if you can't plant vines in champagne you can plant cereals. That's
1: the difference a million versus five thousand wow
0: if you're in a grand cru vineyard in champagne you're going to be paying at least two million euros a hectare
1: hectare is not very big uh it's only a matter of time if we're sitting here and you're telling me that the french have decided that there's a little area of southern china that they're going to allow to be grown <laughs> champagne i can see it well thank you so much that was uh, what, a, what a weird and wonderful story uh into an industry that we all think we know about um is your book just about champagne
0: okay so i'm going to be writing a book about the history of wine fraud, and I'm currently about twenty thousand words deep into it. I'm working with my agent on that, and it should be ready to submit to publishers by April. Fingers crossed, and I hope that it would be out in maybe eighteen months to two years. So perhaps I'll come back here That's and nice. chat to you about more dodgy dealings in the wine industry.
1: the